Hello out there and welcome to the Meme Stream, the podcast following meme students, present and past, on their adaptive walks of life as they embark on a career in evolutionary biology. The Meme is a unique master's program that enables upcoming evolutionary biologists from all over the globe to study and research in Europe. This podcast will travel all over Europe and the world, leaping, as Richard Dawkins says, from brain to brain, meme to meme, telling tales of our scientific ventures and research projects. I'm Kate Garland, one of your traveling hosts and the creator of the meme stream, coming to you from Montpellier, France, and this is episode three. This episode is brought to you by the brilliant Hilda Schneemann, who is doing her third semester at Cambridge in the UK and is also a trusted traveling meme stream host. Now, Hilda got to interview the past meme student Juanita Gutierrez Valencia when they were both in Montpellier, France at the Joint Congress of Evolutionary Biology this year. If you have been listening to our last few podcasts, you might have recognized a pattern, that being that all of them so far have been recorded at this Evolutionary Congress. And indeed, this entire first season of MemeStream has been recorded during that conference. And the main reason for that was that I discovered during conferences, particularly joint evolutionary ones, that they're a very popular meeting spot for past and present memes, and so a useful place to organize interviews. But in this particular interview with Hilda, we are in quite an echoey room, so please forgive the sound and try and imagine that you're just in a cool meme stream evolutionary simulation for this one. Hunita and Hilda sat down in this conference to talk about the genomic signals of natural selection in genes that have a role in pollen competition in a plant called the alpine rockcress. Also, as always, a reminder that this podcast will quickly plunge into the pool of evolutionary thought. So if you ever find yourself lost in the rambling of these two scientists, we have a great meme stream blog where there are extra bits and pieces of information for each meme stream interview that can help you gain a bit more understanding. Also, the main aim of the meme stream is to keep this conversation going. So if you have a question about something you heard on the podcast, you'll be able to submit it at the bottom of each blog where either the interviewed scientist or another helpful and knowledgeable meme can answer you. And now over to Hilda and Hunita. This is Hilde um, talking to you from Montpellier, and today I'm talking to Juanita Deret Valencia. Hi, Juanita. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. So, first of all, do you want to tell us something about your meme tra- trajectory? Where you started and where you finished? Yeah, sure. So, for my first semester, I went to Groningen, then I moved to Munich, where I spent one year. So I did my short project with John Barsh. Um, then I did my first master thesis at the Institute of Systematics, Botany and Ecology. And then I moved to Stockholm, where I did my second master, master thesis under the ex- internal supervision of Michael Fontaine from the University of Groningen. But I was hosted by Tanya Slotte from Stockholm University and the Science for Life Laboratory. Okay. And today, are we going to talk about this last project in Stockholm? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Cool. So, what made you initially interested in this project? Why did you choose it? Okay, so the story is that I first learned about this uh, model organism called Arabisantina, and I found that it was a great uh, organism to study which are the consequences of mating system strategies. So, so what, what kind of organism is this? Okay, yeah, so this is a, um, a plant, so an alpine plant mostly, and it's uh, distributed in Europe. 
So you can find populations from southern Europe to uh, Scandinavia. And the great thing is that um, some populations are outcrossers, meaning that they rely on pollinators for their successful reproduction, whereas those populations in the, the north of Europe uh, can self-pollinate, meaning that they can rely on, their, on themselves for, to assure their reproduction. So by that, you're already removing a selective pressure that it's either exerted by pollinators. And so I would say that was my main interest to contact uh, Tanya Slotta's lab. Yeah. And also she's a, she's a population geneticist. And yeah, by that time I already wanted to start learning methods uh, on okay. population genetics. Yeah. Nice, so it sort of combined the interest for the organism and also the methods that you were wanted to sort of get into. Yeah, yeah, sure. Cool. Yeah, it was a good combination. So, so what was exactly like the question of your research project there? Okay, so as I mentioned before, these plants show uh, contrasting mating strategies. So we wanted to understand which was the consequence at the level of pollen. So you can imagine that when you have a crossing population, there are going to be several types of pollen landing on the stigma, and then the intrasexual competition is going to be very high because each of these pollen may have different capacity to germinate and to grow pollen tubes. So, so pollen is sort of like the, the sperm of the plant, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay, and the stigma is the, the sort of like the ovules or the eggs of the plant in a way that yeah. are being fertilized, or? Kind of, so the stigma is like the first receptive uh, okay. female structure. So by the end of the stigma, uh, you, you can find the eggs. Okay. So pollen grains are in this competition, just like sperm, and they will start growing um, throughout the tissue of the stigma to finally reach the egg. Okay. So you can imagine it happens like in sperm in animals. Yes. So there is a crazy competition between them to finally reach the And the only, only one pollen will succeed or several of them can? Yeah, several of them. So in this case, uh, most Brysicasi plants, this is the family to which Anabisapina belongs, they have several eggs that are available for, for, okay. the, um, for fertilization. But still, it's very reduced compared with the number of pollen grains. Okay. So competition is strong. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what we wanted to study was if we will be able to detect um, patterns of uh, let's say, natural selection, relaxation, acting on those genes uh, potentially involved in intrasexual competition. So under the Darwinian selection idea, you can expect that if uh, competition is reduced, then deleterious mutations will accumulate, yeah. just because there is no room for selection to act if you have just the same phenotype competing on the stigma. Yeah. So they won't show differences regarding their germination time and yeah. the speed at which they grow the, the tubes. In so in a way, place. the plant is already assured that its own pollen are going to get accepted, so they don't have to be as like good competitors and as fantastic exactly. as if they yeah. had to convince another plant. Yeah, that's a very good explanation. <laughs> exactly, that's your expectation. Whereas if you have crossers, then all of them will be will try to, to do their best to achieve the female part. Okay. And therefore, selection is going to act very strong and will remove the deleterious mutations from the population. Okay. So our aim was to test for these hypotheses. Because before it has been shown that in selfing lineages, you do observe relaxation in traits related to pollinator attraction. 
So these flowers tend to be smaller and less attractive, but it hasn't been confirmed for pollen if there is okay. something like that happening. Um, and yeah, so we thought the best way to test yeah. for this was to look at genes that are involved in this competition. So what did you find? So what we found that was, according to our expectation, in populations with increased rates of selfing, there is uh, evidence for the occurrence of relaxed um, sexual selection. And you see this by estimating uh, the proportion of sites that are evolving as effectively neutral. So I would like to explain what this is. So for cutting regions, you have non-synonymous and synonymous sites. And you can expect that if there is a mutation happening at non-synonymous sites, um, this will change the function of the protein. So you expect that selection is going to be very strong at this stage. But if you observe that mutations accumulate there as if they were neutrally evolving sites, it's simply because selection is not being efficient enough. Yeah. So, so synonymous sites are when you have a change in the, in the DNA which gives you the same amino acid. So it doesn't really make a difference to the protein, right? Yeah. So that's why we think that they're neutral, yeah. these yeah, changes. Exactly. Okay. So yeah. we compare like the ones that we think are neutral and the ones that are not neutral to sort of see how selection acts. Yeah. yeah, and it's good that you mentioned that because we made use of a um, method called the distribution of the fitness effects. Um, well, this is like DFE alpha, it's the, the way uh, it should be called. Um, it also accounts for demography by comparing non-synonymous and synonymous sites. So, our so why is that important? It's important because these plants that have sh uh, shifted from crossing to selfing, when they were expanding, uh, so apparently the center of origin is Anatolia, and of course during their migration there were also some bottlenecks. So every time they moved further to the north, they would experience a reduction in the population size. And of course that makes difference to tell apart which is the contribution of selection and demography in producing these patterns mm -hmm. of polymorphism. Because this reduction in population size can leave the same sort of traces in the DNA as that you would see if they were under selection, right? Exactly, yeah. 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 Right. So that's what we found that, that we confirmed that um, by, by using this method that populations uh, with increased levels of selfing will show a higher proportion of sites that were accumulating mutations. So that what you can conclude from that is that uh, selection was relaxed due to the, this reduced uh, rate of competition between pollen grains. And it was also um, very nice as part of our experimental design that we also account for other confounders that might lead to similar patterns, such as um, something called haploid parking. So you can expect that genes with um, their haploid they will show their mutations or will expose mutations immediately to selection. Yeah. And that can affect also the pattern of evolution of the genes expressed in these tissues. And we also control for expression breadth and for the abundance of the transcripts. So we were just controls we used to guarantee that uh, our observation was due to the transition of mating system and not, to, not due to other factors are known to affect gene evolution in general. So, and so why is the, the haploid thing important? Is it because the pollen are haploid? Or? Yes, they are. So 
pollen, it's a funny structure to call it like that. So you have a vegetative part that is not directly involved in the fecundation part, but only in the competition. Okay, so, so the fecundation is like the fertilization Yeah, part. so there is also, so pollen grains are composed by this vegetative cell, and this cell is also the one that will grow this pollen juice. But there, it, the pollen grain is also carrying sperm. So the sperm cells are rather um, passively transported by the pollen tubes. Okay, so it's like a vehicle for the sperm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and also in our results, we compared uh, the strength, the strength of selection acting on genes expressed in the vegetative part of pollen, the pollen tubes, and sperm cell and, and sperm itself, and we found that uh, genes expressed in sperm are relaxed compared with those expressed in pollen. This for a crossing population. So this was also good to confirm that there is a differential role in for, for each of these components of pollen grains. And it makes sense that if uh, sperm cells are rather passive during the, the process of fertilization, they can also accumulate more mutations than those are more directly involved in fertilization. Mm -hmm. And this was also the case only in the selfing populations, or both in the outcrossing and selfing? So we first detected it for the outcrossing population, so you can say that in presence of sexual competition, this pattern is maintained. But when we tested it for the, for when we compared mixed or populations with selfing and outcrossing populations, uh, we didn't detect this, this difference, but we did detect the difference between pollen and pollen tubes. I mean, when we compare the populations with different mating strategies, and this suggests that the transition to selfing is especially affecting genes that have something to do with the competition. So it's not a generalized effect, mm -hmm. but let's say restricted to these cells really? directly involved in the competition. Cool. Yeah. So, so what did your sort of daily reality look like? Did you go to the Alps and collect flowers, or did, was it a bit different? No, it was a bit different. Uh, so by the time I went to Stockholm, um, Tanya Slot and Benjamin Linen, who were my supervisors, they already had uh, data from several uh, populations. In this case, I worked with a Greek, Italian, and French population. Uh, we also had data for Scandinavian populations, but in that case, the, the the level of polymorphism was already quite reduced, so our conclusions for that populations were not that clear. But I just had to make use of the data, and it was good because I also wanted to acquire skills in bioinformatics. So I was analyzing next generation sequencing data, and that implied to uh, perform quality assessment, the genotype calling, and also the filtering of the of the sequencing data mm -hmm. we were dealing with. And after that, I was, uh, of course, performing the main analysis to derive our results, but it was mostly bioinformatics work. So lots of uh, useful skills for a biologist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's something that, I guess, if, if you're into these topics of population genetics and genome evolution, those are skills that are a must. Yeah. So, what do you think was like the sort of impact of your of your project? Could you publish it, or do you think it has like consequences for the field? Um, so, I guess it would, the the main consequence is that um, before they did similar analysis on other plants, 
but they didn't have the chance to actually control for uh, mating system, so to directly see what happens when you remove the selective pressure that is promoted by the mating strategy. Because before they tested on another plant called uh, Capsella grandiflora, and this is a obligated crosser, then they also did something similar in Arabidopsis taliana, but this is a uh, mostly selfing species, so they didn't have the chance to actually control for this. And also our, our experimental design also included some of the um, factors that I mentioned before, so this athlete burning, the expression breadth, and the, express, the, the abundance of the transcript. So I guess it was a good experimental design to actually uh, like take these patterns. Point out uh, what was going on. Yeah, 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 exactly. So we didn't publish it yet. Um, I presented a poster during the evolution conference here in Montpellier. We are still working on doing some extra analysis um, just to confirm our results from other additional tests. Okay. You want to be really sure before you put it out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but if I have the chance, I would like to. I mean, this is a, about my trajectory during the meme, and I would like to mention a paper that I published uh, from my first master thesis. So this is also this has also something to do with um, evolutionary transitions, but in this case, is the transition from also with plants, but you know, tropical plants that are involved in mutualistic interactions with ants. And in that case, we studied how this transition was from plants that interact with ants and those that have lost the interaction while colonizing the Andes. And our paper is called Recurrent Breakdowns of Mutualisms with Ants in Neotropical Ant Plants, Cecropia. And it was published in Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution this is a project that I did under the supervision of uh, Susan Brenner, Professor Susan Brenner uh, from LMU, and Dr. Guillaume Chemiki. Uh -huh. So, and was it like, was it sort of a similar sort of question to this one, or because you did it before? No. Or after this project? It, it was before. It was before. Uh, I would say it's a different project. What it has in common is that it's about evolutionary transitions. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it was from the perspective of like a macroevolutionary perspective. So we wanted to understand if there was a common pattern on the way the plants rely on ants for their defense or not. Okay. So it's an interesting story because there is this pattern that uh, species that colonize the Andes have lost the interaction. And apparently this has to do with the abundance of, the, of ants along the, uh, okay. the, the altitudinal gradient of the mountains. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, sort of the transitions is is uh, an important part of your interest. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So to, to understand how is it that traits are shaped by interspecific interactions are gained and lost. So I would say yeah, that's a topic that I, that I'm interested. In. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. How did you like enjoy life outside the lab, or what? How did you like it in Stockholm and Munich? Mm, I guess um, what I enjoyed the most was, of course, the people from my meme, because well, we were all the time like attending our courses together, sharing daily life, and complaining about problems we had while doing our projects. Um, so I guess yeah, my main source of um, <laughs> let's say outside uh, lab life was uh, yeah, 
from my interaction with guys from, from the lab. Also in Stockholm, I guess the, the, the group is uh, extremely kind and um, I mean it's still my lab, I'm doing my PhD with them. Oh, okay. So I really like the working environment with them and also they're extremely kind people and yeah. So it was a nice social atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, and so, yeah, you already mentioned briefly your PhD. Did you go straight after MIME into your PhD or did you take some time off in between? Yeah. So after MIME, I really wanted to go home. So I went back to uh, Colombia and I spent like five months there. Then I started a PhD, uh, but this first experience wasn't really what I expected. So I resigned shortly after and I was lucky enough to have this opportunity at the lab where I did my second master thesis. Um, I think it's relevant to share this experience with um, those listening to the podcast because I guess there's nothing bad about thinking again on your choices yeah. and exploring what you like and also making sure that you're in the right working environment. Yeah. So I really appreciate the fact that MIME allows you to explore different labs, different topics, um, and yeah, in my case, it was it was precisely one of my experiences during the meme that helped me to find the lab that, that, that really allowed me to yeah to develop the skills and the knowledge that I want. So yeah, I will of course encourage all those who are listening, um, of course, to if they want to stay in academia, to take their time, to think carefully, and also to take advantage of the meme to explore which are their options. Uh, one final question. Can you remember when you first thought about evolution? Um, so I guess I grew up, like during my first years of life, I lived in a farm. So I guess I just became very sensitive towards living organisms. And I guess after that you just start you know, wondering yourself how is it that all this diversity occurs. Um, also I had a dog during my childhood. So I guess when I first uh, was in contact with the idea of evolution, I was very excited to, to see that we were actually relatives at some extent. <laughs> and then I went to, I actually, there was a public library in my hometown, and I went there and um, took the Darwin's book from The Origin of Species. And uh, this book was great because it had figures and pictures, so it was very easy for me to read. I was in high school by then. Um, yeah, but I would say it, was, it just comes from the fact that I was very sensitive towards nature mm -hmm. since my childhood. It might also be that my father should have mentioned Darwin at some point because he's more, more into um, scientific materialism, so I guess <laughs> he should have mentioned his name at some point. <laughs> yeah. So where can we find more about what you're doing? Okay, so you can find me on ResearchGate. Um, I still have to update my profile, but I have one. If you find interesting uh, what I just told about uh, our research project, you can go to uh, tanyaslotthelab.se. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And thank you to everybody listening and joining us on our third episode and incredible voyage of the meme stream. Remember, you can read up more about Juanita's work on the meme stream blog and ask any questions about what you heard there. The meme stream is brought to you by the Erasmus Mundus program in evolutionary biology. 
Special thanks to the Meme Stream team for all their hard work and dedication to the project. Our intro music is written by the artist Magella, and Little Diddy at the end was found in the depths of the internet by YouTuber Sunil Singh. You can follow the Meme Stream on SoundCloud to listen to our new episodes, and please remember to rate and share our podcast to help us adapt and evolve. Yeah, it's evolution. Yeah, it's Darwin's revolution. And it teaches us the history of life.